So Money, episode 957, David Stein, author of Money for the Rest of Us. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. This has to be the most telegraphed, waited for, promised recession that I've ever seen in my investment career. We are talking about the R word today. Welcome back to So Money, everybody. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. How about that for Monday Motivation? Talking about recessions on your favorite podcast. Well, you know, I just do what you tell me. You guys have been asking a lot of questions about the predicted downturn in the market. And as you just heard our guest say, he says it's one of the most talked about, most anticipated recessions as far as he can remember. And David Stein, our guest, you know, he's got a little bit of experience with this. He's been investing for over 30 years managing billions of dollars as a professional advisor. And now, thankfully, he's sharing his knowledge with you and I, the rest of us. He's got a podcast called Money for the Rest of Us and also a book with the same title, Money for the Rest of Us. We have him here talking about not just how to prepare for the downturn, but how to invest your money in all market conditions and what to look for, how to be strategic, whether you've got a 401k at work or an IRA We cover it all. Here's our friend, David Stein. David Stein, welcome to So Money. Welcome back to So Money, I should say. How are you? I'm super. Thanks for having me back. I'm excited. You know, four years has gone by. You were one of my first guests uh, back in 2015-ish. And I learned so much from you as someone who had already been in the podcast space doing really well. I I took many notes from your successes. And um, when you came on uh, all of those years ago, we got to talk a lot about kind of your background, retiring early, your background in investing and your podcast. And so listeners would encourage you to check out that episode for some background. And today we've got you on the cusp of launching your first book, which is aptly named after the podcast and the brand that you've built, Money for the Rest of Us. Let's start there. What is this book going to teach us that your website and your podcast necessarily doesn't? Well, the thing, as you know, Farnoosh, with a podcast, you you do one episode at a time, but you don't you never really can step back and say, well, if I was going to actually organize this to help somebody accomplish a specific goal, how would I do that? So you have all this content the the benefit of a book is you can take of the millions of words I've spoken over the past five years on the show and I don't do interviews. So it is, they are my words. And what are the best 60,000 words that I can put together into a framework to help people become better investors? And that was really the genesis of the book. Mm-hmm. I had a listener to my podcast who is a literary agent in New York approach me and with, with essentially that is let's take some of your best writing or work and put it in a book so people can have something that's more accessible. So there'll be a print copy and also an audio version really. And the subtitle of the book is 10 questions to master successful investing. So it's very much a framework to help people decide where should they invest? Because oftentimes with investing, we, we fall into 
something looks shiny and attractive, I'm going to go do cryptocurrencies or I'm going to go buy right. Amazon stock. Right. And, and this really gives you a way to, to kind of step back and here's some questions to ask yourself before you invest, figure out where should we be investing at? Mm. So let's answer those questions without taking all the pages out of the book, but would love to get your advice around where to begin. Many of us have perhaps a workplace 401k, or if we work for ourselves, we have an IRA, but within that, within that product, where should we be investing? Well, the, the first thing you should do with investing is, well, well one, understand your 401k. That, that's the place to start. But as part of understanding it, we should ask ourselves, what is it? Sometimes when I, I used to actually, when I was an investment advisor, I would go to these union shops and, and other businesses and, and give 401k education. And most had no idea even what the funds were or what the options are. And mm -hmm. so we need to understand, you know, what actually is this particular investment? I mean, it's got a name, but, but how is it invested? And, and what does it do? And that's really the key to understanding investing, to be able to explain in simple terms. I had one of my first endowment clients, it was a college, liberal arts college, and the investment committee chair said, if I can't explain an investment to somebody that's not on our investment committee, we're not going, going to invest. And it was a really important concept, just to, just the act of saying, here, I invested in this. Here's what it does. Here's how it makes money. That's important because the act of explaining keeps us humble. Mm -hmm. They've done academic research that shows that when we try to explain something as simple as, let's say, a zipper, <laughs> it, we realize that, well, I think I know how it works, but I don't really know. And so it's important just to be able to understand. And so these questions really kind of go through and help us to be able to explain what it is. And, but for most people in terms of the actual products to start with investing, they should start just understanding what's in their 401k. What are these options and start saving that way. And really easy to figure that out, right? You can go on to the website for the 401k plan manager. There's a 800 number. I like to use the online chat box. <laughs> a lot of times right. you can get really quick on the go feedback that way. One of the things that your book really helps to, well, it really strives to do is to help us avoid costly mistakes when it comes to investing. Can you go through some of the top costliest mistakes that we make? Um, is it perhaps working with an advisor sometimes who's going to charge us a big fee? Do you, what, what's your philosophy on robo advisors versus, uh, you know, the traditional path of working with someone, which again, is a question of cost. Well, I, I think it's more than appropriate to work with an advisor to, to answer the big questions. Am I saving enough to, to retire? You know, what about estate plans or, or just sort of kind of get a, a big handle. You can do that by hiring an advisor on, on a project basis. You can pay him a, a flat fee or, or pay her a flat fee. And that's different than hiring somebody to manage your assets because you believe they're going to outperform the market. That, that's, it's a terrible reason. And the advisors don't outperform the market. If they could outperform the market, they would be running hedge funds and not being financial advisors. And so Sometimes people like to hire advisors for the peace of mind and to keep us from from just doing stupid things. For most people, investing isn't that complicated that you can't manage your own assets in an, a diversified pool of index funds and ETFs. So but having an advisor and kind of walk through to figure out, am I saving enough? You know, what are my retirement plans? 
when should I take Social Security? I think that's that's very appropriate. So I don't think hiring an advisor is a mistake unless mm -hmm. you start looking at I am hiring them on an ongoing basis and they're charging me one and a half percent. It's important to recognize that when with any investment cost, it's coming out of our return. So we might have an expected return of six, six and a half percent for stocks, which is a, a reasonable assumption going forward. Well, we're taking one and a half percent to pay an advisor and, and other cost for an expensive mutual fund. That's where the cost can when we talk about costing mistakes. The first is just understanding what is the cost of mm -hmm. uh, you know, who's getting a cut is how I put it in the book, be it the government in terms of taxes, be it an advisor, be it just the underlying expense ratios of, of funds. And it's just important to understand what it is. I've had former clients come to me and say, or even listeners that say, I don't, I don't pay my advisor any money. And then I said, well, let me, let me see your you portfolio. Sure about that? And, you start, <laughs> and you start looking at the portfolio and say, yeah. well, yeah, you might not be writing a check to them, but you're paying, you know, this commission in terms of the load, this ongoing commission to the visor in terms of 12B1 fees. We just have to recognize that. Sometimes I get questions from listeners, David, that say, they say, you know, I'm doing all the sort of basics in the beginnings. I'm investing in my 401k. I have a Roth IRA. I have an emergency fund. I don't have any debt. I want to take on a little bit more risk. I have a few extra thousand dollars a month. What's the appropriate answer? Well, first, I, I think it is appropriate to save outside of tax deferred vehicles because sometimes people want to retire early. And if you retire, let's say, in your 50s or 60s, you don't necessarily want to access your IRA or your 401k. And so having a taxable pool of money, in fact, in, for most people, they're never going to be able to save enough to retire in retire early in these tax deferred vehicles. So if you want to retire early, you're going to have to start learning to save and invest in a taxable account at a brokerage. And, and the place to start is just open an account at a Vanguard or Fidelity or Schwab or TD Ameritrade. I mean, they're all very similar. And, and sometimes you already have an account there. And then you do start investing. But, but when you talk about taking more risk, it comes down to what, what's the goal in terms of of that risk. In fact, I just did an episode last week on, on managing risk, and it was based on a book by the economist Alison Schrager. It was titled An Economist Goes into a Brothel, and she talks about the, the first part of risk management is finding what you want. So when you say, I want to take more risk, well, what is the actual goal? The goal isn't to take more risk. Is The goal is, well, I want to have more in my nest egg. And maybe that's investing more aggressively, but maybe it's actually just saving more and cutting back expenses. But for most people, they should, oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Keep going. Well, most people should just start with the basics, right? They start with stocks through diversified index funds. I believe it's better to start with global stocks as opposed to having it all in the U.S. because the world is global. The U.S. Mm -hmm. only makes up 55% of the stock market. And then once you have some stocks, and then I believe investors should have bonds yeah. in, in terms of a bond fund or in, in today's environment, an alter short term bond funds. And the, the benefit of that is just you need to be in a, many people have to have 100 percent stocks because that's all they know. But the thing about stocks is they can fall 60 percent. Yes. And so it's a question of how could that impact your lifestyle in the sense of 
risk, when we talk about risk, risk isn't losing money. That's a big component of it, but it's how does the impact of that losing money impact your lifestyle? For many young investors, it doesn't because they're still saving and they don't have actually have that much money yet. Well, you brought up stocks falling 60% and that is a nice transition uh, as, as scary as that sounds, to talking about the recession, the the uh, looming recession that we keep hearing about. What is your gut saying? Since you're somebody who comes from the investing world as an investment manager, as someone who talks about investing every day, I know we're not really supposed to be too caught up in the day-to-day fluctuations. And if we are young investors, a recession shouldn't scare us from putting more money in the market. But it begs the question, right? What do you think is happening and where? what does that impact at all our investment strategy? Well, in terms of what's happening, I, I look at this formally monthly for my membership community. I do an investment conditions report and, and that's very much a focus where are economic trends and I rate them red, green or yellow. And when you look at it, the economy is slowing globally, but this has to be the most telegraphed, waited for, promised recession that I've ever seen in my investment career. Everybody, I remember being a year ago in an Arizona in a restaurant waiting to seat and it was some people, just typical workers, nine to five workers, and they're talking about the recession that's coming. And like these people, they're not even investing. And usually, oftentimes, when people are expecting something so readily, it doesn't happen quite then. And one of the things that I focus on is leading indicators in terms of business surveys, how they're saying business is doing. And what you, other than the bond market interest rates falling, the leading indicators aren't saying, suggesting that there's a recession coming soon. I mean, I subscribe to a number of research services such as Capital Economics. They estimate that the the probability of recession over the next six to 12 months is, is less than 20%. Hmm. Now, Davis Research has it at less than 10%. And they're all looking at sort of the same indicators that say that, no, the consumer businesses and households are not acting other than talking about the recession. They're continuing to buy. Retail sales are very strong in the last month. And so until you actually see changes in behavior mm-hmm. other than just waiting, then a recession isn't imminent. As to what to do about it, it gets back to, you know, what is the potential impact? Now, I'm someone, you know, of the age where our nest egg is a big portion of our net worth. And I've always been comfortable being willing to reduce risk incrementally if a recession looks like it's coming. Because during recessions, corporate earnings growth plummet. People tend to freak out. They, They sell their stocks. And if we're in an environment like now where stocks aren't terribly or rather expensive, particularly in the U.S., it's OK to make adjustments to your portfolio mix to do so incrementally is fine. We don't want to make huge shifts and, and fear and go into cash, but it's OK to lighten up on risk mm-hmm. if it looks like a recession is coming and there's more indicators and you're starting to see more news of actual economic trauma happening. Yeah. Well, in that case, maybe it's too late. <laughs> I don't know. It's, no, it's, no, it's, really. I mean, the stock market's up 20% this year. Yeah. But then, it's you not- you know, not to get too technical, but things like the inverted yield curve, 
which is usually a precursor to a recession. They give it about 18 to 24 months before a recession hits when that starts to happen. I don't know. It's, but sometimes uh, it doesn't take, it's three years. It's mm. been three years since you've had. So you've had one indicator and most recession, I mean, there's, there's a group of people out there that predict recessions and for a living in the media. <laughs> That's a great, what kind of a job? It, That's and it, if that, well, right. I mean, they're pundits. Yeah. And if that's your job and you see an inverted yield curve, then <laughs> that's a big indicator. But you have to look at the other indicators and they're not flashing recession mm-hmm. at this point. So what do we do as individuals, investors? Do we sit in cash for three years waiting for that recession to hit? Mm-hmm. Probably not. I mean, if we had done that this year, the stock market's up 20 percent. And go ahead. Were you as shocked as everybody else when the financial markets crashed in 2008? Or did you see some of that percolating? And and if you did, what were the signs? Well, the one sign, no, I wasn't shocked. I mean, I was shocked that it was as grave as it was, but I was managing institutional money. We've been pulling back risk. In my personal account, I was in cash. I'd moved my, my parents into cash, which is a big move, but it was such a an extreme environment, but here's an example of an indicator that individuals can look at. I mean, there's something called the manufacturing PMI. It's put, it's a business survey. They ask businesses around the world, how's business and manufacturing tends to be very sensitive to the economy. And just last month, the PMI was below 50 for the first time. So typically during an economic slowdown, it falls below 50, above 50, things are, are, expanding. Well, right now it's like a 49.2. Now back in 2008, you know, it was down in, you know, below 48, 47, 46. And there were other indicators that to suggest that there was a lot of risk out there and it was okay to pull back and, and to make those adjustments. I don't, but the other thing about that though is, is it was clear there was a bubble in housing. And when everybody's out buying third homes with no income, <laughs> I mean, there's a problem. And that's the other thing when we see the current environment, even when, when we have, if we have a recession this time, we don't have the level, uh, certainly at the household level, the level, level of debt that we saw. And in terms of the asset bubble, you don't necessarily have that. I mean, valuations are a little high for stocks, but they're not like they were back in the internet bubble days. And housing certainly isn't priced like it was back in 2007. So there isn't really mm-hmm. the excess that you see that would lend itself to a major, major financial crisis. Not that there's going to be not be surprises. I mean, you referenced the injected cash and you know, the overnight bank rate jumped the 10 percent yesterday and then fell back. And I, I mean, there, there's always you know, every cycle is different, but we don't want to panic. We just want to stick to our savings. And then if it looks like things are getting bad, it's okay to lighten up on risk. That's a great analysis. Thank you for that. Thanks for calming my jitters. Uh, We're currently trying to tackle the housing market ourselves and definitely noticing a cool down in pricing, uh, which is great for us as we go to buy. But as we're first trying to sell, it's a bit of a bummer. Uh, We know we probably could have gotten more a couple of years ago for our apartment. But hey, you know, well, right. It's, I mean, it's never going to be a buyer and seller's market at the same time. It's not. In fact, I 
I talked about that last week on my episode. This is another example of this risk management sort of, we just sold our house. My sister in New Jersey is selling their house and it gets back to identifying what is it that we want. In my case, I wanted to sell my house because I, we spend the winters in Arizona and I didn't want an empty house. I didn't want to deal with it. And so we took the first offer we got, even though it was 25,000 less than what we were asking her case, her risk-free option. What she really wanted was she'd done a lot of work on this house. She wanted a certain price and she's willing to counter offer for that. And so it's important whenever we're investing to really step back and say, here's what we want. And is there a risk-free way or a low risk way to get what we want? And for most of us, when it comes to investing, we just want to be able to retire. Mm-hmm. And so the biggest thing we can do is save as much as we can as part of that and keep our costs low as part of that ultimate goal. And you retired early, right? I did. Yeah. So I was 46 when I retired. So it's been seven or eight years now. And, and that's yeah. another example of risk management. Why mm-hmm. did I retire then? Well, I was a partner at an investment firm. We had bought the company back. We were we had done very well. And I had re- reached my number. I could walk away. And I mean, I still wanted to work. But I, my biggest fear is somebody was to come along and do something stupid at our company or put this nest egg in peril. So the risk-free option for me was to go ahead and leave and then have the company, you know, buy me out over a number of years. And so we always kind of have to weigh these things in, in investing and in life in terms of kind of managing, deciding what we want and what is our risk-free option, a way to get what we want or low risk. We have a question we were asking guests uh, about financial freedom. And it's a question that is brought to us by our sponsor, Chase. And I wanted to ask you, David, what is something that you do currently in your financial life that helps to maintain your sense of financial freedom? Is there something habitual that you do? Is there maybe an app that you like to reference something? Well, uh, there's, there's two things. One, I think, and this is sort of my pet peeve when it comes to financial freedom is, is people do a lot of work. They think about it, but nobody ever steps back and considers you know, what they just rely on historical returns and assumes that the stock market's going to return 10%. So they kind of gloss over the expectations of figuring out, you know, what can I actually earn on my investing and put it into some type of calculator. So I think it's important to understand what, what are the returns going to be and what drives those returns. Now, in terms of something that we do, because we've been doing this since we have been, you know, quote unquote, early retired is we once a month, we just, we, I do a spreadsheet and I see, I keep track of our budget not, and not so much of budget, but just what do we spend mm-hmm. and what's our net worth? So I go through the exercise, like here's, here's what I own. Here's the allocation. And you know, it takes a couple hours. Now, partly I do it. It's at least in terms of my asset mix, cause I share it with my members on my website, but it's also a very good exercise to sit down and figure out, you know, is our net worth growing this year? I mean, if, if you're early retired in your 40s, you really want to be in a position that your actual net worth is growing each year. So you're not spending this portfolio down because it has to last for 50 years. And and that was the biggest transition in retiring early is realizing, yeah, this nest egg is, is supposedly going to last 50 years. And that's 
psychologically, we can't even grasp that. And so it's better to take it one year at a time, one month at a time. And so from a financial freedom standpoint, sitting down, looking at the spreadsheet, seeing what you own, seeing what you spend and make sure there's some, they're in agreement. You've been podcasting for almost six years, which uh, we were joking before we were on the recording line that that's like a hundred years in podcast life. Um, and what do you think of all these people rushing to start podcasts and, and with the future of podcasts, is this something that you th- see yourself doing for another six years? I do. I, I think there's a rush to start a lot of things. Sometimes we, we just keep chasing the next big thing. Whereas and I like podcasting. I spend more time on my podcast now than I ever have. Just an, I do my own editing, my own production. I think if, if, if you choose to do anything, choose to do it well and keep getting better at your craft. And, and people will find my podcast that want to listen to all 250 episodes. And I have no idea why people do this. But I can tell you the, the most recent episodes are way better than they were in the beginning. And I'm sure it's the same with, with yours, mm-hmm. Farnoosh. You just, you just get better at it because you practice it. So no. So if you want to do a podcast or a blog or YouTube, plan on doing it a long time. I mean, start it to see if you like it, but then if you like it, just keep doing it because there'll be things you realize five years down the road that you didn't realize today that make you better at what you do. It's true. I, I really appreciate that advice that this is a marathon. You know, there's a lot of um, mixed messages out there about, you know, first of all, what it takes to start a podcast and the success that you can have. And there are certain, and there was an article in the New York Times that kind of was a a non-article in my view. I remember remember that. Right. (laughs) I was like, everyone's starting a podcast and everyone's failing. I'm like, no, there's, there, there are a few people that are making a lot of money. There's a lot, there's some people making nothing. And then there's, there's actually a pretty good subset of people that are making a nice, uh, I wouldn't say living, but you know, it's, it's, it's profitable and, and it's something that is uh, financially exciting. And I, I would like to see some profiles of those individuals that they're sort of the, um, you know, the unsung heroes. <laughs> of well, podcasting. right. And I think, th- th- and you do a podcast for, you don't do it for the money. You do it right for, to learn. You do it for the connections. I know one podcaster that got a job because his pseudonym is a central bank podcast. His pseudonym happened to be the name of the new research organization he got hired for. So, I mean, it was the same name and mm. that, his podcast got him uh, certainly an interview for this job. And so, yeah, but the, it, it's hard. It's harder now than it used to be. I mean, it it, when you started, when I started, there weren't as many. Mm-hmm. And so the expectations kind of have to be I mean, the median podcast gets 250 downloads per episode, which are 250 people listening to your podcast, which is great. But right. you can't compare that to somebody that's getting tens of thousands. And by the way, that person's probably been doing it for years. You know, I think that that's important to recognize that, you know, I, my first episode, you know, versus my episodes now, five years later, we're getting like 10 times the listens, but it's because I stuck with it. <laughs> it wasn't because right. I did anything fancy. I just kept doing it. And I, I do the same. I also have a YouTube channel and ah. nobody, you know, I might get a hundred people that watches the video 
in, in a typical video. But I do it not because I'm going to be a YouTube star, because I'm not, but it's good practice looking in front of a camera speaking. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I take content, but just, and one reason I do is because I know if I can keep doing this for three or four years, I'll just be better at speaking to a camera, which is a completely different skill than podcasting. It is. Yeah. I'm looking just, forward to just the whole blinking. Yeah. I, mean, I, I, just, <laughs> I used to use a teleprompter and I realized I did a video. It's like, I'm blinking like every two seconds. And then I stopped blinking and then I could not blink for five minutes. And somebody called me out on that and said, Hey, your <laughs> eyes are going into a recession blink. And then you just have to, your eyes are going into a recession. That's very on brand. Moisture. Um, David Stein, thank you so much for joining us. I want to um, encourage everybody to listen to your podcast, subscribe to, to Money for the Rest of Us. We have a, a good uh, you know, portion of our audience who they really do want to deep dive into investing. So money is not really the place for that. We do touch on investing and we have great guests like you on to help take the, the material forward. But if you really want to become an expert at investing, Money for the Rest of Us, the podcast, the book, you have uh, a wonderful, I know, community online at moneyfortherestofus.com. Congratulations. And um, I look forward to comparing notes with you on podcasting in six more years. Sounds great. Thanks, Farnish. You can learn more about David on his website, moneyfortherestofus.com. He's also on Instagram and Twitter at JD Stein. All this information is on somoneypodcast.com. Click on Ask Farnoosh as well. You can leave me your question for our Friday episodes. And there, let me know if you'd like to co-host. And P.S., for those who leave a review on iTunes until the end of the year, I'll be picking one person from the iTunes review section to receive a free 15-minute money session with me. So just putting it out there. If you've been wanting to leave a review, now's a good a time as any. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. And I hope your day is so money. Money.